Good morning, Mission Viejo Christian Church. Great to be with you on this weekend before Thanksgiving. I mean, we're just, I mean, looking ahead towards food and family and celebration and just giving thanks for all of God's blessing. And with all of that ahead of us this week, you might think that this would be a perfect time for one of those just warm, fuzzy messages and uh, just gentle touches and over the river and through the woods and, and to grandmother's house for, and all of that. And, um, well, as it happens here at Mission Viejo Church, we don't just kind of cherry pick what we're talking about. We start with the scripture and we take with what's there in the scripture and we talk about that as best as we can and try and understand what's going on there. And we're in this series in the book of Jude, The Good Fight. And Jude is, um, he's not on his way to a Thanksgiving celebration. Where he th- In fact, it's the first century when Jude's writing. Thanksgiving isn't even yet a thing. And quite frankly, he's just not in the mood. And the reason that Jude is not in the mood for that kind uh, of thing is that although they didn't have Thanksgiving feasts in the day, the church of the day had a custom of coming together regularly for what they called their love feasts. And they would gather together and they would share a meal, kind of potluck style. Everyone brings some stuff and they would be together. They would celebrate their identity as followers of Jesus. They would share a meal. They would break bread. They would demonstrate God's love to each one by loving one another and caring for one another. And it was a point of real beauty. It was, uh, it was the highlight of their week. It was the place that they came, they shared, they connected, and then they celebrated communion together, the Lord's Supper as well. It was beautiful. However, things weren't going so well. Someone, there were some folks who were getting in the way of that, and we've talked about that here in the book of Jude. He's, Jude here, as we know, he's contending for something very important. He's contending for truth. And he's, he's taking a look at some people who have come into the fellowship and have veered away from the truth. They've, uh, in some ways, rejected the truth and become detached from the truth. And it's having, some, uh, it's having some implications in the life of the church. And Jude is recognizing this and he's calling it out and saying, this can't be. The truth is too important to let this go. I've got to address these things. In part because the person that they're following, Jesus Christ, uh, when he prayed for his disciples, he said, Lord, sanctify them by your truth. Your word, he said, is truth. In fact, earlier in his ministry, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Truth was very important to Jesus. And because it was... It was very important to the church and it was very important to Jude. And when he was running across violations of truth, he was having none of it in his church. Now in his particular case, there are two particular breaches of the truth that Jude is dealing with. They were back in verse 4. We covered that a few weeks ago. But he says two things about these people who have come into the midst of the believers and the followers of Jesus. And he said that, um, that one, they were replacing grace with license. That is to say, they said, hey, we've been told that it's by God's grace that we're saved and that it's not our favor and it's not what we do that earns God's favor. It's, it's just God's grace that makes everything okay. And that's true as far as it goes, but they took that part of the truth, the grace, and they extended it to a place it was never supposed to go. Well, if, if, it's, if it's all about God's grace and it doesn't matter what I've done, 
They said, then surely it can't possibly matter what I ever do. And if God's grace is so good as to forgive, I should be able to just live like hell for the rest of my life and expect God's grace to somehow transform that into heaven. And when, when Jude ran across that, he said, no, I gotta call that out. That's not right. That's a breach from the truth that Jesus had taught. The other one was this. It says back in verse four again, that they denied Christ as the sovereign Lord. Ooh, like that's right at the center of what it means to be a Christian, right? To say that Jesus Christ is the divine son of God who took on human flesh for the express purpose of being crucified as a sacrifice for our sins so that we could enter enter into right relationship with God. That Jesus who did that said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God by any other means. And that's what Jesus taught, but apparently these people that Jude is addressing, willing to make a break from the truth, were saying, well, Jesus did some good things, He certainly did some miracles. But maybe he wasn't really God in human flesh. And maybe he isn't really the only way. It's not a big stretch, is it, right? To to move from the first century with what Jude is, is dealing with to what we hear just out and about in our neighborhoods and our workplaces and in the general culture. Jesus is not a bad guy as far as he goes. He taught love one another and be kind and do good to others and the golden rule and all that, nothing wrong with that. I don't, know, you know, I don't know if he was really God and I don't know if he really raised from the dead and I'm not willing to say he's really the only way, but he's all right. Jude would say you have, at that point, although you're entitled to your opinion, that's a break. It is a rejection of the fundamental truth of Christianity about who Jesus is, why he came to earth, and what he accomplished while he was here. So Jude is dealing with some serious breaches of the truth. And here's what I find interesting. He doesn't just, um, he doesn't argue back against the heresy. He doesn't say, well, you're saying these things. Let me show you where you're wrong. Let me provide you with the argument. Let me correct you specifically and walk you through the steps one through three. He's actually talking to the church and he does something different. He says, I'm not, in in this letter, I'm not just going to address the doctrinal points as important as they are. I'm actually, Jude says, I'm going to demonstrate that when you violate the truth, when you break from the truth, when you reject the truth, there are some consequences that go along with that. And they might not be the consequences we intend, but they're real. As we saw over the last couple of weeks, one of, those, one of those consequences is judgment. That's real and it's eventual. And it's eventual. But this week, Jude is going to continue to describe the impact that the rejection of truth has on these people that he's addressing. He's essentially going to say, hey, because they've rejected the truth over here, you're going to see some things about them over here. They, they have turned their back on the core of the Christian faith and on the clear teachings of the gospel. And because of that, I'm, I'm going to point out some of the things in the way that they live and behave and the things that you can see in your life that you're going to say are, dec- are directly related to the abandoning the truth. And the trap for us is this. Here's the trap. To look at those people, to look at those false teachers, to look at the people that Jude is addressing, and for us to go, oh my gosh, those people are the worst. 
Can you, can you believe that they teach that? Can you believe they think that's true? Can you believe that they live this way? Can you believe that these are the things that are in their life? Oh my goodness, they're horrible. Thank God none of us are like that. Anytime we say anything remotely like that, we need to, like, the red flag needs to go up and we need to just check ourselves a little bit. A little self-righteousness finding its way in, and that's never a good thing. The trap is to just look at what Jude describes and go, yeah, that's pretty bad. The trick, on the other hand, is to say, as bad as that is, and as clear as that teaching is, God, will you, will you show me where some of that's happening in me? Will, will you show me the places where, knowingly or not, I may be breaking with the truth? Would you maybe show me those areas in my life? I might, eat, might not even equate it to the fact that I've taken a break from the truth, but I see these things in my life and they're not good and maybe I need to go back and find out what's at the root of all that. So... With all of that, that's a, that's a lengthy introduction to just a few verses here in the book of Jude. But let's start in verse 12 of this letter here. Jude says, these people, they are blemishes at your love feasts. Eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who only feed themselves. Your love feasts are this beautiful offering of fellowship and togetherness and unity before God. And these people are like a big, ugly oil stain right in the middle of it. Have you ever been all dressed up, ready to go to, like, to a wedding or to a formal occasion, and you got your best clothes on and the best suit on or your best dress on or whatever it is, and you know, just one speed bump at the wrong time, and you're holding the coffee, and it's just... <laughs> and you, yeah, it's never happened to me either. And, and all of a sudden, like you were all set to go, you're looking great, best you be, and there's just this hideous stain, and no one's going to see the gorgeous tie, no one's going to see the great shoes, no one's going to notice how you're carefully coordinated with your, with your spouse that you're at the event with, all they're going to see is that big, ugly coffee stain right where it doesn't belong, right? It just undoes everything. That's what Jude is saying. This is a terrible thing that's happening this way. They, um, these people who claim to be the teachers, they're supposed to be your shepherds. They're supposed to be providing for you as, as God's flock. They're supposed to be um, protecting you from the dangers that are out there. But they're not looking out for you. They're looking out for themselves, and they promote themselves. I, I can't help it. I've, I've, I've got to take this, help us say, God, where, where am I in that? I mean, they're terrible people, but God, what are you, what are you saying to me? And, and I've got to tell you, there are times when the whole adventure of coming to church on a Sunday and being part of a church all through the week and following Jesus and being in a life group and all those things, I love those things. I enjoy those things. They, um, they are life and breath and strength and they make me feel more comfortable. They help me to grow and become a better person. I like what happens when I'm around the people of God and I'm around God's word and I'm around what God's doing. I really do like that. I like it so much that sometimes I just filter through the grid of, this is so good for me. Gosh, I love when Pastor Mike teaches. I get so fed. I love when the worship team sings and leads and plays their music so well, and I, and I feel close to God. 
There's nothing wrong with any of those feelings. Like, that ought to be happening. Okay, I'm not complaining about that. Not one tiny little bit. But every now and then it clicks into my brain. Well, that song wasn't the one I wanted this morning. (laughs) I wish they'd sung that in a different key. I wish Pastor Mike would have chosen a different passage. I wish that the lighting was different. I wish that the temperature was different. I wish that the chairs were more firm or less firm or fill in the blank. But I come with a sense of this whole environment should be custom generated for my maximum experiential pleasure. (laughs) That's nothing like being a shepherd. That's making everything that God's doing narrowing down to this tiny little thing that's me. And, and we're subject to doing that without even knowing that. So we can't hit this part of the passage without saying, Lord, would you be at work in me, reminding me that my perspective when I'm in and around and amongst what you're doing, it's not just to make me feel good, but that you want to do something in others. And, and not just others here in this church, in this group, in this gathering of believers, but you want to do something great in the world. And what's taking place in here, as much as I enjoy it, isn't the point. The point is, can we share God's love with people Every day, people at work, people in our family, people that are coming to our Thanksgiving gathering, just love people because they're people, because God loves those people. People that are easy to be around, people that are difficult to be around. People who are following Jesus like I am, people who have no desire to follow Jesus. God loves them and therefore so should I and so should we. That should be our sense of experience of God's goodness is that we're just Like conduits, whatever God is doing, it should get past us and out onto others as quickly as possible. Okay, before I ride that hobby horse too long, we better get moving to what's next. He goes on to describe them this way. Those same same people. He says, they're clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, They're wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. He, Jude here describes the same people in the same circumstances and he gives us a sequence of four different metaphors to describe what we see in the life of people who have become detached from truth. Okay, you with me? And he says, here they are. They're clouds without rain, they're trees without fruit or root. They're waves without order. They're stars without a future. There's an example from the sky. There's an example from on land. There's an example from the water. There's an example from out in space. As if to suggest wherever you go, wherever you are, or from wherever you are, When you detach from truth, there is these implications and there are these these, uh, consequences of that. So I want to take a look at these images, these metaphors that Jude uses and talk about them one at a time. The first one of this, they're like clouds without rain. And he's speaking to a group of people who live in an agrarian society. Uh, uh, They don't have sprinklers to water their lawn. When they talk about farming and growing their crops, they talk about waiting for the rain to fall from the skies so that a crop can grow and be produced. And so when in an arid climate you see 
clouds, clouds rising on the horizon. Those are clouds of promise. Those are the symbols of God's provision. We live in Southern California. We, we see clouds and go, oh no, a day without sunshine. <laughs> but Jude is writing to a group of people who when they see clouds on their way in the right season say, God's providing a crop this year. God's giving us the food that we need this year. God is making it possible. The clouds represent the fullness of promise. But these people, Jude said, they're like clouds full of the promise, but they bring no rain. There is no fulfillment of that promise. What looked like promise and potential just blows on by and does no good whatsoever. Imagine if this Thursday, you went to wherever you're going and you walked in and the, out on the patio on the front porch, there's like all the pumpkins and the gourds and the candles and the decorations and it's just, oh my gosh, this is so beautiful. And then you walk in and all the decorations have been brought down out of the attic and dusted off and there's napkins that match placemats, that match plates, that match ribbons. It's gorgeous and the table is set out and there's a little wicker cornucopia and just food flowing out of it and you're just to look at it your mouth begins to water and your stomach begins to grumble and you go this is going to be the greatest thanksgiving ever and then you look around and all your favorite people in the world are there all of them and that weird uncle that nobody knows what to do with when we all get together as a family He couldn't make it this year. Don't worry, he's fine, he's well. He just couldn't make it. There's going to be no weird, awkward conversation. It's going to be the best Thanksgiving ever. And we all sit down around the table full of a sense of promise and expectation. And on each plate, a single Trisket cracker. Can you imagine the disappointment? I mean, I know we all tell ourselves we're there for our family and our friends and our loved ones and stuff, but frankly, we're looking for more than a Trisket. The hope of the, there's more promise, there's more potential, there's more expectation than dry, crispy, crumbly, and good for me. That's not what we're looking for. Clouds without rain, man. These people, when we become detached from truth, all the potential, all the promise, all that God wants to do, just passes on by. Here's the thing. Contained in those clouds is everything that the land needs to flourish. Right? But without the rain, that doesn't happen. Again, let's get... It's not just about them. It's about us this morning, right? Contained within you. Contained with what God is doing in you. Contained within your experience with God is everything that this world needs to flourish. It's kind of up to us, however. Are we going to be just bearers of all that potential that pass on by and don't offer any of that to the dry, needy ground around us? Again, the problem now, and then I want to ask this question. If we find ourselves doing that, it's not just that we're not behaving well. This should be a sign that somewhere back over here, we've we've broken with the truth a little bit. 
we've, we've lost track of the truth that God doesn't just love me. God loves all. Lost track of the truth that I'm not the center of God's universe. Lost track of the truth that God has a plan to bless the nations through his people, not just bless his people through his people. Okay, no Triscuits for Thanksgiving. We've handled that. The next image that he goes to is this. He talks about trees without fruit or root. These people have broken with truth. They've let go of truth. And, and now it says they're, they're twice dead trees. They have no fruit. They produce no fruit. And they have no root. That is, it, um, this picture, he calls them at the, at the autumn time. When there should be, should be fruit on the trees ready for harvest, it turns out that there's nothing. It's a disappointment again. And because the roots haven't grown deep, uh, that tree is easily uprooted. It's dead once because it produces no fruit. It's dead again because it can't withstand the storm that comes along the way. They've broken with truth, and the end result of breaking with truth is that we don't produce the kind of fruit in our lives that God calls us to produce, and we will be easily uprooted and set aside that way. Paul, when he was writing to the Galatians talked about what should, what should the life of following God's truth produce? He called that the fruit of the spirit. If we're, if we're walking in the truth, if we're living in the truth, if we're connected to the truth over time, it'll produce love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the fruit that the truth will produce. And so if we find ourselves over here saying, I'm a little bit of a tree without much fruit. I got maybe a little barrier pebble of love, but I should be having a big whopping fruitful of that, right? If the fruit of the spirit is just non-existent, the problem may not be that I'm just not trying hard enough to behave that way. It might be that somehow over here I've lost track of the truth. The truth that says those things don't come just because I try harder or I work more or um, I have better self-control or self-discipline. Those things are the fruit of a life that is surrendered to the Spirit of God. And once we surrender ourselves to him, he begins the work of growing and producing that fruit. Jesus said, right? Jesus said, he's the vine, we're the branches. We remain in him and then we grow and produce fruit. And apart from being connected and surrendered to him, there's no fruit that we can produce in our lives. We got to lock in on the truth that says the life of truth and acknowledging that is, is really surrendering and letting God have his way in us. He hops to another one. It says, this is waves without order. He talks about the churning waves in the scene. I, I grew up surfing and body surfing and, uh, and have such great memories of the ocean. And there is nothing better than being out on the ocean on a day of good surf with a nice swell running, not a lot of wind, and the sets of waves just line up in such an organized manner. And you can see them coming in five or six or seven at a time, and you can see them coming, and they're beautiful. And they're entertaining. And they're fun. But these aren't the waves that Jude is describing. He, t- he refers to them as the wild waves of the sea. Have you ever been out at sea, like out at sea? 
the waves don't look so orderly and well-designed and easy to play in. They just look like this churning, foaming chaos that's trying to sink you and to drown you. We made the mistake of going on one trip where we got um, our, our berth on this ship was on the top floor, way at the front. Right, so every wave was all the way up and all the way down. And when it rolled, it rolled all the way over and all the way back. Wow, that was fun. <laughs> Jude is drawing here on, an, on some imagery from the prophet Isaiah. And, and this, is, this is what Isaiah says about the waves and the wicked, actually. He says, but the wicked, they're like the tossing sea, which can't rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud, and there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. You ever, you ever seen the ocean and the shoreline after a big storm? Like, there's a quaint beach town, and it has a lovely cliff and gorgeous blue shores for most of the year. But then the big surf and the storm comes in, and it churns, and it pulls up all the mud and the silt and the debris. And you look out the next morning after the storm, and it's just like a mud pit down there. Right? That's what it means to be waves without order. So detached from the truth... That the beauty God has invested in us, the beauty God desires for us, gets lost and torn up behind the muck and the mire and the ugly mud of our actual life. I believe Jude is referencing here when he says, look, if you, if you leave the truth, if, if you abandon the truth and you say, well, God's grace is, is such a big deal that now I can go just live as ugly a life as I please. Jude's just saying, no, you know what? The life you're going to lead, you're gonna lead is going to look pretty ugly. Like churned up mud that should, should have remained buried underneath the waters, but it's not. The final image um, has to do with stars without a future, which I think is very interesting. And uh, it, he calls them, in the passage, he calls them the wandering stars, right? Um, so... so in terms of the text itself, some people uh, interpret the wandering stars to be not all the stars that are way out there, but the planets, which kind of move through the skies differently. A lot of other interpreters, and I kind of side with them a little bit, uh, uh, believe that he's referring not so much to the planets, but to what we would call a shooting star. A star that just flashes across the sky, bright, interesting, fun, and then gone. From our perspective, never to be seen again. Just a bunch of nothingness cast against the outer darkness that way. There is something about walking away or detaching from truth that might allow us to be flashy for a moment and have a great idea or have a quick uh, experience of fun or pleasure or whatever. But as sure as that shooting star ends up simmering down into a small flicker and then into utter darkness... That's where a, a breach of the truth takes place. There are, you know, in our day and age, we can hop on the internet and we can find people teaching anything. There's some crazy stuff out there. Now, there's some great stuff, but there's some crazy stuff out there. And sometimes that crazy stuff out there, it's like, oh my gosh, what a fascinating thought. What a possibility. What if God really didn't care how I lived? What if, what if God said, just, nah, it doesn't matter. Do it your way. Have it your way. Live your way. It doesn't matter at all. 
well, now I'm like, what? There's a momentary flash. Like, wow, that's interesting. That's captivating. Who wouldn't want that? Have you met people who grew up having it their way their whole life? They're tough people to be around. Entitlement's an ugly, ugly thing. That sense that I get it my way becomes the world owes it to me to get it to me my way. And then it sets me up against the world at every... Like the idea of getting my way one time, I like that. But Lord, protect me from ever actually getting my way all the time. That's a train wreck. That's a dumpster fire of a life, getting it our own way every time. So when a new teaching comes out, when a new doctrine comes out, when there's a new kind of hot take on this or that, part of what we get to do, and Jude helps us do that, is to say, before I just ride that thing and enjoy the ride into outer darkness... Maybe I need to step back and say, how is that idea really connected to the truth? Because if I, if I connect my life to the truth, it's going to lead me to God who is, who is light and forever, right? But if, I'm, but if I'm following a lie, it takes me out to darkness, stars with no future whatsoever. Now, Jude's about to make a big turn right here. Okay, I don't want you to get whiplash, so I'm going to prepare you. Up to this point... Jude has been talking to people inside the church. He's essentially been, he, he's been saying to them in so many words, you all should know better. You've been given the truth. And you have accepted the truth. You've been following the truth. And you've been instructed in the truth. and you've been, You should know better than to abandon the truth in the way these people are guiding you. You should know better. Now he's going to take a turn, and instead of addressing those who are in the church who should know better, he's going to take a somewhat larger view. This, is, this next passage is not about chastising people in the church who ought to know the truth. He's talking on a much bigger scale, in the church or not, big picture, ultimate destination, a refusal to live in the truth will eventually be judged. The day will come when the one who says, I am the truth, will have a final accounting with those who oppose him on that point. This is how Jude describes it. He's referring to a, uh, to a book that's not a part of the Bible, but a book that he was familiar with, uh, uh, the prophecy of Enoch. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they've committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That sounds pretty heavy, right? A little light light Thanksgiving uh, reading there. For those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, he offers the promise of a forgiveness of all of those sins that require judgment. When we accept the truth, and that truth transforms us, 
when, when we confess of our sins and, and repent of our sins and ask God for his forgiveness, placing our faith in the fact that when Christ died on the cross, that paid the price for those sins, that's a judgment we're spared. But outside of those sins and evils being forgiven, judgment is what awaits for those who live outside the truth. Um, I want to read together. I'll read out loud. You can read on the screens. But there's this passage from the end of the book of Revelation. Um, and, And in that book, John writes and he has visions of what the end times will be. And there are fascinating studies about what all the symbols of everything means and what's the kind of schedule of events that play out and things like that. Those are all very interesting. That's not what Jude's talking about here. I want to take us to the end of John's revelation where where he describes in his words what Jude has been describing up, up to, uh, that we just read as well, okay? So this is John saying, I saw in heaven standing... I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. This is Jesus he's talking about. Don't miss that. Faithful and true. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, a symbol of his suffering and and the life that he shed. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. That's one of the prophecies. He, treats, he treads, I'm sorry, the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God so that, ooh, this is ugly, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. It's an inversion of Thanksgiving. It's the birds coming to feast on the people that are being judged. Let's just catch that today. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. I hope this rider on the horse and his army are going to be okay. Let's see how it plays out. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on his behalf. And with these signs he had deleted those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. And the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And the rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all of the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Birds gorging on flesh is not a great Thanksgiving image. I get that. But what I want us to see here is that Jesus Christ made some claims about who he was. Centuries prior to that, God's prophet made some claims about who God's Messiah would be. And Jesus said, I am that person. And then his followers made some more prophecies, which we've read that say, if we ref- that for those who refuse to walk in this truth, 
for those who will detach, be detached from the truth of who Jesus is, there is, a, there is a difficult, painful, judgmental end awaiting them. That doesn't bring us joy. It's not like, yeah, go birds. <laughs> we don't rejoice in that, but we, but we acknowledge when we, when we see that imagery, part of what we acknowledge is that's what you and I deserve. That's where our own selfishness and sin is taking us. to. Do. We deserve that, but Christ came so that we didn't have to experience that. Christ came and said, I am the truth, and I want something different from you, or for you. I want for you not the experience of judgment and destruction, but I want for you life, abundant life now, and eternal life later. I want that for you, and I want it so bad that I am going to die to make it possible. And after that happened, God, his father, raised him from the dead, put his seal of approval to say, paid in full for the sins that you and I have committed, forgiven to the things that we've done, and and a not guilty verdict in place of the end that we actually deserve. Some people see this description of of a God who ultimately judges those who refuse to stand in truth and say, what a horrible, nasty, um, ill-minded God he must be. But those who understand the lengths to which this God goes to make it possible for us not to have to endure that, that truth that Christ left all the comforts and the privileges of heaven to take on all the frailties and limitations of, of humanity and then, despite him being God in human flesh, he gave himself, he yielded himself up to be taken to the cross to experience in his body the punishment for the sin of all, for all time. Judgment is not God's deepest desire. Redemption is. Punishment is not God what is what God is all about. He is about forgiveness and freedom and deliverance. We run across these passages from time to time and we read them and we look into them because we need to be reminded it's important that we make the power of God's deliverance, the power of God's forgiveness, the power of his sacrifice known to all. So what do we do with all of this? What action points can we take? First, I think well, we need to assess. What about me? In what ways am I a cloud without rain? Right? In what way am I a wild wave of the sea? Or just a flaming out shooting star? Right? In what way am I a tree that's twice dead? Am I unstable? Am I not grounded? Am I failing to... Like, where am I in that, God? I, I, help me assess where I am. Because... After we assess, we get to repent, right? Once we assess, gosh, uh, there are things, these things don't match up. I'm, I see these in my heart. That means I'm not rightly connected to the truth over, the way, over here the way I ought to be. And it's time at that point to repent. I love I loved the way C.S. Lewis talked about repentance. He talked about like in math. If you're working a math problem and you get the, and you get the answer wrong, 
you can't just keep going forward to fix it. You, you got to go back from there, work your way back and go, oh, here's where I went wrong. And then you move forward from there, right? Sometimes we like to think, oh, I've made some mistakes and I, I got a little detached from truth and well, I'll just go forward doing better now. And, and repentance is that place where we go back and go, I got it wrong here. This is where I failed. This is where I made that decision. This is where I rejected truth. And once I'm there, I can say, God, I repent of that. I don't just acknowledge it. I repent. I turn away from it and say, God, that was wrong. I confess it and say, God, that was wrong. But I repent and say, and I'm not going there again. I'm going to stay in the truth moving forward. So we can assess and we can repent. And then I simply say, we just want to engage. By that, I mean this. If the key to all of this is staying connected to the truth, we have to engage the truth. We engage the truth of God's word when we come together on a Sunday. But I'll tell you, it's not enough truth for the week that's ahead of you and me. We engage the truth when we meet together in life groups and small groups and in Bible studies and we look into God's word and we, we try and we hide it in our heart and, and get it down deep in there. That happens and, and we're engaged that way. There are studies and online resources and the very simple practice of just sitting down in a quiet place with God's word, the Bible, truth in front of me and giving it kind of the time and the space to find its way in. If we'll engage the truth that way, we'll stay coupled to the truth that way, and we will not walk away. And the final action point I just want to mention would be to explore. And on this one, I think those first three are probably most related to people who said, I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm trying to do it the best I can. I'm flawed, I'm imperfect, but I'm, I'm doing what I can and I'm learning to grow. But I know, at least I hope that there are some who are with us in the room and I hope that there are some that are online who are here not because you already believe, but because you're willing to explore and say, what's this all about? And I would say, first of all, you are in the right place. Um, this, is, this is a place where we come to seek out what's in God's word, to see what it might say and how we can understand it and how do we put it into practice. If, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we'd love to be a part of that exploration with you. And all you would ever need to do is uh, speak to one of us or our prayer team members over here after the service um, and say, hey, I've got some questions. Would somebody be willing to talk with me? Hey, I've got some interest, but I don't know what to do with it. Or where do I go from here? Or how do I get started? We got people and processes and, and ways to say, we would love to be a part of that journey. Not to strong arm anybody or, or um, make them uncomfortable or to uh, somehow try to run your life from a distance that way, but simply to say, we, we believe God loves you dearly. And that he has held plans for you eternally in his heart. And there would be no greater joy for us than to help you connect with that. And to begin exploring what that might look like to live within that. Thank you so much for joining us at Mission Vale Christian Church. Just know that we always have live services here every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. 
We'd love to have you here, and we'll see you next time.